Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you. Thank you. It's so fun to be here. I almost came up on the stage during your introduction. I'm sorry about that. My timing is always off at this festival, except when I'm running to screenings because you have to be on time. So that is the insanity of Can David, how are you holding up? Not well. <laughs> Not well. I mean, I could lie, but I think everyone would understand uh, that I was within a few minutes. So may as well just come out with it. It's fun having you here. I mean, obviously, I, I do this podcast every week with my colleague, Ann Thompson. I'm very sorry that she couldn't be here. Uh, but it's an interesting opportunity to talk about what it's like to be a critic here because I was in the trenches doing what you're doing for a long time and I, I know what that's like to a degree but also it's it's sort of like when you have a traumatic experience and then you can't fully recollect what it's like once it's over mm-hmm. because the the insanity of, of just purely operating as a critic in this festival and reviewing movies is a very unique process you're going to screenings and then you're right back at your computer it's almost like you're glued to the kitchen where your laptop is set up when you're not in a dark room so has it been worth it this year it's always worth it uh worth it here more than just about anywhere else as far as i'm concerned and they have taken measures to to make that particular uh cycle a little bit easier on us so that we don't have to run back and file immediately after every film uh if anything as someone who has two young kids at home i i'm particularly happy with having a rhythm that i can fall into that I, is predictable that i know i'm going to have you know way too many hours of uninterrupted writing time um and you can just sort of process one or two movies at a time and then move on before they all sort of filter into the fugue state you know is your mind most of the time here so it does allow for uh, all that that hecticness allows for a certain precision that other environments might not yeah i mean time is an interesting thing for an american journalist it can because as you touch on it's like you're both on the u.s time zones news cycle and you're on can time so it's like you get these initial reactions to things and then new york wakes up and then la wakes up if i could if i could wake up six hours before new york every day when i was at home i would be so much less anxious as a human being and just so much happier the hour like between when i wake up here and 2 p.m when it feels like new york really logs on are just so blissful uh and uninterrupted and then you start you know the emails start coming in and yeah uh, things change but the other thing that's interesting is so we both experienced the way things used to be here where, where the the big movies would show at like 8 30 in the morning and then you'd get immediate reactions and usually there'd be like the tweets first once twitter kind of took off and then the movie would have its big gala premiere now the press screenings are at the same time or in some cases you have to go to the gala screen so you get this sort of weird interplay of the noise of the the kind of uh, glitziness of can at the same time that you're getting these critical reactions that don't always line up so case in point let's talk about indiana jones yeah i mean I, that's a perfect example because what my agenda in the weeks before a festival is to see as many of the movies that are playing there as possible because nothing stresses me out more than that gala situation where you have to run back and there's no 
embargo and you have to immediately pound out 1500 words about some movie knowing that everyone else is doing the same thing. Uh, and in that case, I was struggling to understand why they would put us through this situation rather than give us the luxury of having some time to sleep on it and see it in a less harried environment. But then listening to Harrison Ford give this speech before the movie after showing a 30 minute, I mean, it felt like eternal uh, highlight reel of his very long and impressive career and seeing how emotional he was, uh, a man who is not exactly known for emoting uh, in public. Uh, it was really moving. And I, I say that as someone who's never had a particularly strong emotional connection to Harrison Ford, uh, I felt like I kind of got it in that moment. Did that feeling carry over to the experience of the film? For about five minutes. And then there were you know two hours and 25 more to go. But uh, yeah. uh, it was something. And it was, it was I, I could understand why they would want us to be a part of that Yeah, it, it's a Disney strategy and I think probably lines up with what Cannes wants to do in launching movies on the scale like it did with Top Gun Maverick last year. It's, it's almost like the, the Harrison Ford nostalgia factor and the Indiana Jones nostalgia factor override any question of, of you know, is this movie any good? I mean, it wasn't... I was here 15 years ago when, when Crystal Skull premiered and I remember critics being like, wow, that was a really weird Indiana Jones movie, but I kind of liked some parts of it and then the fans really didn't like it. To me, it kind of felt like this was setting you up for, yeah, the, the critics aren't going to like it at Cam, the audience is going to love seeing Harrison Ford and that's what seeing the movie is going to be like. Too. I think it's going to fare better uh, once it opens for the public. Um, but it is so funny that they had him up there uh, in you know however old he is now in his current form and then the movie opens, they pull the bag off his head and he's you know, 35 again. Uh, it's very jarring in that moment. And it added to the uncanny feeling that the special effects bring to them already because we have yet as a species to figure out how to make de-aging not look uh, as alien in anything as uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I actually thought, yeah, and I, th I thought the weird thing about it was cer certainly the tech keeps advancing. Like, it's it's pretty convincing, but you, his voice still sounds different. Like, you still hear old Harrison. <laughs> so there's some weird... like auto-tuned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. it, still, it still sounds like an year old man yeah i know i mean so so the movie really for you was a total misfire you weren't you didn't get into it at all uh i mean i i wanted to um you know for any or anything you, you want to enjoy it i was skeptical that you know the, the the thing that i enjoy most about indiana jones movies is what steven spielberg brings to them and so you take him out of the equation mm -hmm. and i don't know what there is to look forward to uh i was I was optimistic in the early going that James Mangold, who is as, uh, you know, a, a, as competent and talented, sort of a second rate Spielberg as Hollywood would have to offer these hey, days. Logan was, was pretty good. Sure. Um, I, I don't mean that as much of a backhanded compliment as it sounded, <laughs> but there is one Steven Spielberg and he's not it. Yeah, that, that opening sequence, I was like, oh, maybe we can, we can, work, we can work, the, work with this. Sorry. And then uh, once the plot, such as it is, kicks into gear, I was out. Yeah, and we, we won't spoil any of that, but I do felt, I feel like, and we talked about this immediately afterwards, it's kind of like The Force Awakens where it's like this concerted effort to do something that will not necessarily take any risks but if you are invested in this franchise in a way that doesn't necessarily have to do with quality so much as your own kind of like autobiographical relationship to it it plays into that so intensely especially at the very end yeah. which we won't spoil the, the difference between this and something like the force awakens is that the force awakens is the start of something it's able right. to sort of promulgate these old things from star wars and and tweak them in a little way and set ryan johnson up to do more interesting things with them at the end of a franchise uh putting it to bed that that is not really as uh, interesting to watch yeah although bob Iger told me at the after party they're, they're not saying anything is definite uh -huh. so we'll see what happens with uh with harrison ford 
and AI and all that stuff, you know, the future is, is complicated. But uh, I had a very different kind of experience just the, the other night with the Idol, uh, which is the other kind of like high profile thing that's that's premiering at Cannes for a very specific reason. But the context is so different because this show is not designed to please everyone. It's designed to like whip people up into a frenzy, much in the way that, that Euphoria has, but I think even to a more intense degree because it it has a very complicated sort of dynamic, and some people would say it's very like male gazy in a way, but at the same time, it's like it's working towards those questions of, of kind of like whose side you're on with uh, this pop star who's who's being uh, exploited by a character played by The Weeknd. And what was so interesting about it was that you could tell that launching this movie at Cannes was was setting it up for a much bigger sort of resonance when it actually comes out on HBO than it ever could have just being a show that people watch in their living rooms. It would be much more diffuse. Sure. You know? I, I haven't seen it, but after, you know, after the buildup and what we, we know about the making of the show and the turmoil behind the scenes and involving Amy Simetz and every, the creative differences, if you will, uh, you know, it's so primed for the discourse to sort of eat it alive. Yeah. Um, that I think last night probably also functioned as a little bit of a, a cocoon for everyone involved in making it to just get dressed up and have a good time and not have to worry about, you know, what the response is going to be. Yeah, although I, I will say, I mean, the the most striking thing to me was this, this um, they showed two episodes of the show and it opened with that famous staticky HBO um, logo, which the next day was gone because HBO became Max, right? Yeah. HBO Max became Max. So this was a big finale in the Palais yeah, for this history. iconic brand. Yeah. So, you know, Can, Can loves history. I mean, it really always, it always feels like everything is a, like so momentous around here, which is why it's it's always an interesting experience, you know, looking around for something that might actually surprise you, that might seem like it doesn't have a big track record and isn't so, sort of like a foregone conclusion that it's going to make a lot of noise. Have you had any of those experiences this year? Uh, so I was just daydreaming about the time I was there at the first screening of a Netflix movie at Cannes. We heard the dum before it started, and they were in the Lumiere Theater, just peals of jeering and laughter. And for, I think that know, was Oprah, right? it was, and then the movie didn't work. Uh, I mean, the movie's good, but the movie literally did not work. Wait, uh, right, it was a projection problem. It was problem. like the white, the white to spring down there. It was crazy. Um, anyway, uh, what have I seen that's been... I mean, I've my beat has mostly been the competition. I was able to see a few films from the sidebar before I... I'm sad to say I haven't found uh, another sort of um, after sun, you know, something that is that sort of unexpected and really takes off. Um, I know some people had that response to how to have sex in a certain regard, which I didn't quite. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, there's an Argentinian film called The Delinquents that I know we both liked. Um, that is, I believe, in directors. Oh, no, it's in certain regard. In certain regard. Yeah. 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 Um, and... I don't know, a few others, a film called The Breaking Ice by Anthony Chen, um, but nothing nothing that has sort of leapt out of the background and really taken the spotlight for me. Or, or shocked you in right. some, to, to, your, to your core. I remember seeing Stranger by the Lake here, uh, and people were not prepared for, you know, like the, the wild sex scene in that movie. Right. You know, it's, it's stuff like that at Cannes where you're just like, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. So, yeah, I mean, the most, you know, potentially shocking of the film, certainly in competition, could have been maybe Jonathan Glenn 
lasers and zone of interest, but its whole aesthetic is sort of invested in anti-shock of in you know not provoking you in certain ways, and aesthetically I mean provoking you through absence. And so it, it didn't have quite that same sort of animated response as much as people I think were awed by the film. All right, so let, let's talk about that film because it was definitely the first competition film to screen to generate a, a, like just a huge wave of positivity and excitement, uh, which is not something you often expect for an austere Holocaust drama. Um, but there's something about, I mean, certainly very can for something like that to, to do so well. But I think it's important to look at it for people who haven't seen it with some sort of management of expectations because it's a very specific kind of experience aesthetically. Yeah, I mean, it's a very easy film to set expectations for in a way, but it does sort of involve talking about the conceit of the film, which I, I don't think is in any way ruinous. So you'd understand it within 10 minutes of the movie starting. But yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, for those who don't know, it's, uh, it's Jonathan Glazer who made Under the Skin, among other films. And it's an adaptation of uh, the late Martin Amos's uh, novel, who he, he died after the film had premiered. Right. Um, although it's a very loose adaptation. Uh, and it is about the commandant of Auschwitz and his wife, who's played by Sandra Kuehler. And uh, you never see inside the camp. It is totally about their domestic existence right on the other side of the wall from Auschwitz. You see the smokestacks in the background and the sound design is nauseating and what it allows you to hear, but their existence is walled off and as myopic as possible. Um, and it is sort of, you know, to, to go with the most off-sided reference, um, you know, it is very much about the banality of evil, but the normalcy of it all, which, um, you know, ends up sort of being more horrifying uh, in, in how possible it is to maintain for these people than almost anything else, any of the spectacle of the atrocity that we've come to expect from Holocaust movies. Yeah, I, I, it is sort of like the anti-Schindler's List or something in a way, in, in a, on a few different levels. One, because obviously it's it's pure, exclusively from a Nazi perspective and you're not being constantly reminded that these are villains. You have to bring your own morality to the table and your own knowledge of history and all these other kinds of nuanced conditions that trust the intelligence of, of the viewer. But, but also because it it doesn't really tell you how to how to feel one way or the other either i mean there's some really subtle moments in this movie where you're kind of engaged in this domestic drama essentially and i think that's going to get talked about a lot as is sort of the overall relationship to holocaust history i mean i went to the press conference for this and the director of the auschwitz birkenau museum was there so they have that kind of validation of it you know in a way that i think it's going to help propel this movie forward past cam and i'm really curious to see how it goes out. It's not a traditional A24 movie, you know, well, in a lot of ways. Uh, the weekend isn't in it, uh, you know. It's, uh, um, yeah, I, it's, it is going to be a fascinating conversation starter, at least among those of us who have a deep personal investment in Holocaust cinema. I don't know how far it will travel beyond that. It is, uh, it makes Under the Skin, which itself was kind of a niche object, became a cult hit, feel like the Mario Brothers movie in terms of its, you know, public appeal. Uh, but there is, um, uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating because the conversation around Holocaust cinema has always been how you depict the uh, how you depict this atrocity. You know, is Steven Spielberg uh, in aestheticizing it in the way that he has, sort of lessening its impact, or is he making the images that are going to allow future generations to remember it? I mean, it's, or this is a constant dialogue. And uh, this movie, by taking such a, an austere and severe 
you know, stance in saying, not a stance, but but its approach is you aestheticize the Holocaust by not doing that at all, essentially, by sort of not even looking at it, but sort of inferring it through this other avenue. I mean, it's it's very, very interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, there were articles after it premiered about like, how many Oscars is it going to be nominated for? And it's like, I think we need to change the context here. Yeah, although it could be the UK Oscar submission in a German language, so that yeah. is interesting. And it could, and, you know, yeah, in, if it does win the Palme d'Or, which it seems as likely as any movie to do, that would obviously be a, a huge feather in its cap that could lift its profile. So you've seen Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. We're recording this before it premieres, but it'll actually run after it premieres. So we can kind of break the embargo in this room for you folks. Just don't tell anyone outside. Uh, and, and let's talk about that movie, because uh, obviously when a Wes Anderson movie comes out, people have so many expectations from the get-go. He's a rock star. He's really popular here. A lot of his movies have played here. How does this one hold up to the many Wes Anderson films? Did you see it? I had you know, seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm happy, I guess, in this context uh, uh, to report. Um, you know, I forget to re- report any news in person. Uh, that it, it's fucking great. I mean, it's... Uh, um, yeah. yeah, there you go. Breaking news. <laughs> yeah. I usually have the Listen. opposite effect on people. Um, the... Uh, uh, no, I mean, I, I think it's one of his very best movies um, and a real, as someone who was sort of mixed on both Isle of Dogs and The French Dispatch, a real return to form for him. Um, and, and, but it's also as much, especially in the first 30 minutes, as it feels like, you know, like any Wes Anderson movie, when you're watching it to be the epitome of a Wes Anderson movie, it takes a radical turn about 30 minutes in. Um, radical, I think, in it how it's thinking about certain things not radical and that like you know it suddenly becomes animation or you know the whole cast dies or anything like that but like uh it, it does sort of invert the way that i think all of wes anderson's characters have ever sort of existed in their skin and dealt with their problems uh and i found that you know and i think probably many people in this room have seen all or most of his movies this fascinating and it totally opens it up and it becomes this really dreamy and cosmic thing in a way that so many of his movies are kind of storybook like and tight and constricting uh and it sneaks up on you and it's just like so moving by the end of it uh people were crying all around me out of nowhere um and uh yeah i, I was a really big fan wow it, it is always gratifying at this festival when you know there's this sense that there's an auteur club you know it's like if the auteur makes the movie it's like the can competition film and sometimes you see those movies and if they're not as good or you see another movie out of competition you're like why wasn't that in competition it's because of the auteur club um, uh, so it is gratifying when it, you remember, like, oh, this person is actually a major filmmaker, and the re- one of the reasons they keep coming back and getting these slots is because they actually make really good movies. Yeah. So, so Martin Scorsese yeah. chose to go out of competition with Killers of the Flower Moon. That that's what we've been told by everyone. It's hard to imagine this movie, what this movie would have been like in competition, because it is sort of like its own force in a way. This three and a half hour crime epic, um, which we both fortunately saw early in New York. So we didn't have to do what some people did here, which is watch Killers of the Flower Moon for three and a half hours and then get right back in line to see May, December right afterwards. It's a great day at the movies, but yeah, that's rough. It's an eclectic day at the movies, that's for sure. We're basically the same film. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, that movie is so monolithic that I think it would sort of make the competition lopsided in a way. Not that it would walk off with the Palme d'Or, but just that the focus is so, you know, the same 
same way that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood wasn't in competition. It's just there's so much hype. There's so much focus on it. Um, I think it is really hard to look at a movie like that. I, I don't. I use the word objectively lightly, knowing that you know not describing the idea that it's possible to look at any piece of art objectively. But you know what I mean. It's like the environment here is so intense that to sort of clear your mind from that and, and watch right. that movie would be hard. Also, uh, I feel like if it won, that would be a big deal. And if something else won, everyone would talk about how it lost, yeah. you know? And Martin Scorsese, I can't imagine he gives a shit about winning a Palme d'Or, another Palme d'Or at this point. I mean, like, he has bigger fish to fry and not a lot of time, as he would say, to, to do it. And I think uh, his eye is really on the ball and not he doesn't need the prize. The interesting thing about Kira's of the Flower Moon is that it's very good, and he is he, incredible to be at you know where he's at in his life. This eighty-year-old director with such an incredible career behind him, and and stretching himself to tell a story that you wouldn't expect anyone else in the industry as a white male could tell, uh, because it's about you know indigenous right land rights and so forth. It's quite extraordinary because at least for some parts of this movie, I think he he does that very well. I would say at the beginning and at the end. In the middle, it's kind of a familiar Scorsese crime story, and I think that's going to be a bit of a challenge for some people, but it's still going to get a lot of attention when it comes out. Yeah, I mean, I second everything you just said, and yet at the same time, one of the things that I really, or maybe enjoyed most about the movie is that there's another movie in there, uh, which is a sort of toxic love story between uh, between Molly and Ernest Burkhart, between Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone, um, and it it is the most, well, certainly not the most fucked up thing in the movie, given, you know, the movie is about essentially like a small scale genocide, but it is, uh, it is fucked up in a way that Martin Scorsese has seldom broached before in this sort of almost phantom thread-like romance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, not to put too positive a spin on what this relationship is, but uh, it, the ambiguity there is really an interesting contour to the overarching story that the movie is telling. Yeah. And I think it allows both... Lily Gladstone is amazing and has never gotten a chance to sort of shine yeah. on the stage. And Leonardo DiCaprio, who continues to pick roles uh, that are as cretinous and free of vanity as possible, uh, to sort of just, just do incredible work together. Yeah, no, Lily Gladstone now is, is officially a movie star with yeah. this performance and will probably be nominated, if not win, an, an Oscar. It's just a question of which category. Sure. So that will keep evolving. Um, so May, December, uh, that one we had to see here. And uh, it was a big acquisition title and it sold to Netflix uh, earlier today as we were recording on, on a Tuesday, which is fascinating uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because usually Netflix wants to buy all rights and some of the rights were not available, so it only bought U.S. rights. But also because uh, this is a movie that is a real crowd pleaser. And so it really is going to demand a kind of theatrical presence to have the life that everybody wants it to have. Yeah, I mean, is Julianne Moore opening a refrigerator with like Michelle Legrand's music going crazy and a slow push in and saying, we don't have enough hot dogs. Like, is that going to slay at home? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, my theater was cracking up. It is. It's a, it, weirdly because it's it's based you know i was here just uh, the other day with todd haynes talking about it and it, it's funny because it's it's based on a you know pretty serious story mary mary Kay letourneau this teacher who had an affair with her, her middle school student and had two kids with him before he was even legal because she was in and out of jail so this is like a pretty serious story and it, it gives you permission to find the drama of it entertaining but it still kind of takes it seriously at the same time well, I, you know, Todd Haynes is never going to make something that I think is like pure slapstick. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think he is a, a, 
permitted to bring this, the humor into the story because he does so through the conduit of Natalie Portman's character, first and foremost, um, who is playing an actress who sort of infers on the downslope a little bit. Um, she's stuck on some TV show that you know, she doesn't want people to watch. And she is coming to live with these people to study Julianne Moore to play her in an independent film. And she really embeds herself in their lives. Uh, and, you know, she's sort of doing like, you know, in, in closer mode, you know, it's a very breathy and sexually forward performance and very heightened, whereas these people in their domesticity away from the spotlight are trying to live sort of a low, lower key existence. And the clash between those two, which eventually leads to really fascinating, a fascinating study of how we perceive ourselves or don't um, is yeah the tension between those two characters does allow for a lot of humor yeah although I'd be curious to see what happens obviously Netflix buying it and their awards team was here looking for stuff like this I would not say this is an easy awards play because it, it it's not going to be for all say certainly for some of the more sort of conservative sensibilities of, of Oscar voters that, that we know are in there I mean it's it, that Michelle Legrand score is very in your face so it's a hyper stylized kind of uh, you know almost like erotic thriller in a way big Brian De Palma vibes big sometimes. like classic yeah. De Palma vibes and uh, and Natalie Portman's very good and Julianne Moore is, is very good but there's this meta component to it that you really have to buy into yeah. to roll with the movie I mean if I were an Oscar strategist and thank god I'm not I would be uh, I would be all in on Natalie Portman in the supporting category um, I think her performance will be the thing that is able to sort of reach over the meta construct and all the you know potentially alienating layers of a Todd Haynes film and grab a wider audience. You know, the beauty of uh, it, the silver lining, I should say, of selling a movie like that to Netflix is that if nobody cares, then nobody cares. Uh, so it, the movie will be fine. It'll exist. And everybody gets paid at right. the end of the day, yeah. or at least a lot of the key folks. So no, but it, but it is interesting, obviously, since Netflix uh, doesn't put films in competition given the requirements for a theatrical release in France that Cannes has. Um, and this film has theatrical release in France. It's it's actually there's a retrospective of, of Todd Haynes' work happening in the the Pompidou in Paris right now, and in that final screening will be made December, sort of like its Paris premiere and it's it's all set there so netflix doesn't even have to worry about this movie in france it can just pluck it out of the can context and bring it to the u.s so maybe that's a path forward for uh, for all these streaming complexities now yeah i guess so i mean not a lot of acquisition titles and uh you know that are generating that kind of attention so so they got yeah, the big one there, and, and there's another one that they just got picked up in, from the competition and that's justine trier's film anatomy of a fall which we both liked quite a bit uh and i was really satisfied to see this movie because her last film, Sybil, was in competition in 2019. I thought it had a lot of interesting ideas. It didn't all kind of fit together. And this one felt like a more gratifying kind of package. It's like a murder mystery, and then it's a courtroom drama, and then it's something else. I don't know. I mean, what, what did yeah. you make of that kind of... I, I don't even know how to begin talking about this movie. I mean, it is... Uh, I haven't written about it. I was just sort of sort of all along for the ride. Um, it is fascinating. It, it is, uh, I formally, I think the, the closest comparison is something like last year's St. Omer, just in terms of a movie that is that entrenched in a, in a courtroom in France. And but it's it, not that challenging to, I mean, I suppose ways. not, but like it is, it is that deep in the intricacies of the French legal system, which I are like so alien to me. <laughs> I'm just like, uh, the, the, the courtrooms there seem wild. Um, but here, I guess, but, um, yeah, uh, but it is such, a, it's very, very talky. 
It's mostly in English, though. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not a French Oscar submission. You know that. Sure. I mean, well, yeah, big plot point is what language uh, they have to speak in. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's the second consecutive year we've had a huge can standout about uh, whether or not a woman pushed her husband off a tall ledge. Uh, and uh, this is a, a subgenre that I think is really going to catch on at this rate. Uh, <laughs> after a decision to leave, and now this, Sandra Kuehler plays a, a successful novelist who is accused of uh, pushing her unsuccessful husband novelist uh, off the third floor of their home. Um, And the entire movie, we don't know, the entire movie is uh, just in the trial for the most part with occasional flashbacks and aside. Right. Yeah, and the whole time you're watching, you're not totally sure who to believe, and then you realize later on that it's not quite the perspective you thought it was. And I I really enjoy that kind of confidence in filmmaking where it's like someone really thought through all these different layers. I mean, honestly, I know we, we, we early on decided that the Jonathan Glazer movie is like the obvious palm contender. This felt to me like something that a jury could really latch on to. I mean, we have this fascinating jury headed by Ruben Osland. It's got people like Paul Dano, Brie Larson on it, uh, Julia DeCorno, so two Palme d'Or winners, uh, and and two two actors who have also directed. And you, you have to find something, I think, that resonates across that crowd. Maybe it ends up being the Glazer, but I, I think a film like this could really catch on with people because there's so much to talk about in different kinds of ways. Yeah, I mean, I you can remind me of the rules. I don't know if a movie can win Best Actress and The Palme d'Or. Nope. Okay, because in that case, I mean that that makes it an uphill battle because Sandra Hewler's performance, her like it's her tar in a way. I mean, she is so mammoth in this film, um, as opposed to how recessive she is in her similarly brilliant but very different performance in the Zone of Interest. Right. Um, Either way, she's probably walking out of here a winner. But Uh, I do remember when Steven Spielberg's jury was here a decade ago and blew his warmest color. They gave it to both the director and the two actresses. So there are ways to play around, but it is. There are rules, and everybody gets one vote. So even if somebody's compromised because they knew somebody who worked on this or that thing, they can't fully sway it. So I, I don't love the idea of futzing with the rules for the Palme d'Or, but I do have a hard time imagining a jury giving this particular movie the Palme d'Or and not having Sandra Huller share in it in some way. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then of course, she can also win for the other movie that she's in yeah. so there so there there are options uh, another movie that we were lucky to see early uh that we'll, we'll show on thursday when this runs is la chimera which is a new film by Alice okay thank you for catching me i won't talk about it you should see it though i guess i could say i liked it but but uh, what i think is really interesting about that whole uh, part of things is, um, you know, the competition goes all the way through Friday. So there's this anxiety that you have, especially as journalists, because you, you want to make the most of your time where you're like, am I going to see the one that won? Because everyone's going to want to talk about the one that won. And I remember it's like, you know, like when Titan screened, I was like, OK, I'm so glad that I saw that I movie. Mean, we had to see it early because I was leaving and I saw it on a market screen. I was like, that's clearly going to be a movie that's going to resonate. So but, but we'll see yeah, this I mean, time. You buy your plane tickets before the schedule comes out. And, you know, I. I'm not saying past Thursday, so I uh, never do. And so uh, we'll see what, what screens after that. I, you know, sometimes they will drop a real banger right at the end just to mess with you. Uh, I miss Memoria. I guess it was last year, two years ago. And uh, that really literal banger because there's a banging sure. in that movie, <laughs> um, big part of it. But uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I have this is my sixth can and I am 
five for five so far of seeing the Palme d'Or while I'm here, which only makes me increasingly paranoid that I won't see the winner yeah. uh, with every subsequent year. But I don't know. I'm feeling relatively confident that I have. Yeah, my, my first two years, it was my 16th can. The first can was 2007, and they used to show a competition film. They'd have a press screening on the same day that they'd have the opening night film. And it was four months, three weeks, and two days. And I was like so jet-lagged and confused and disoriented. I was like, whatever, it's, I'll, I'll catch up with it later. Not realizing that if you miss a screen around here, you never know if you'll get to see it. And of course, that one. And then the next year, the class showed at the end of the festival. I missed that. And then after that, I was like, okay, I'm on the hunt for the Palm d'Or winner. I'm going to build a schedule around it damn it so you know it's you never know but i love that kind of unpredictability predicting what a festival jury is going to pick is always sort of a fool's errand you do the best you can but you never know you never know what sort of crazy hijinks that ruben oslin's gonna get up to next (laughs) yeah exactly i wouldn't put money on it although i know some people do so we're gonna open it up to questions from the audience if you have any questions about canned stuff industry stuff movies we're seeing whatever yes and just wait for the mic please Thank you. That was a great um, uh, rundown. On the industry side, I just was curious what, you know, the uh, word of mouth that you're getting in terms of how films are selling, the types of films that are selling. I mean, I I know like, you know, big action films, blah, blah, but, you know, some of the other indie films in competition. Yeah. What's the vibe in the in the market? Yeah, I mean, buyers want movies. Every year we hear that buyers are going to be more resistant or that you know nobody really knows what can play or that in the U.S. films that aren't in English language don't play and then somebody buys an international film and somebody sp- overspends on something. And so, so people are looking for things. In the market, I've heard that there's been much more resistance because a lot of stuff in the market... These screenings are not often complete films. People are watching trailers and snippets of things. And so it's been much slower there because people want to see finished projects now. It's just hard to know how to take a gamble on something unless you could see how it plays. So May, December, you know, that was a choice that CAA, the agency made to premiere that movie without distribution here because they knew it would get a huge crowd response and they were entertaining offers, you know, immediately from all these different directions. And then, you know, you have companies like Neon coming in and buying, you know, uh, international films because they want to have the Palm Noir winner. They want to have, if it is a film that's not in English and could maybe cross over in the U.S. market, they want to have that. So you are seeing a lot of that kind of energy at the same time that you're seeing, um, you know, uh, consolidation in a way because a lot of the resources are the same. A lot of people have output deals with Hulu, for example. So it's kind of the same money sloshing around. And I think most films that are worth talking about will get sold here. It's just a question of, you know, is it going to be a big deal or is it going to be just good enough to get it to the U.S.? So it's it, it's smaller in a way than it used to be, but everybody, all the, all the players are here and they're, they're doing their work. Um, have you seen any impact of the writer's strike here in Cannes on availability of people or the way that projects have been sold or discussed? Yeah, I mean, I've seen, I mean, I've been in a lot of press conferences and asked filmmakers about it. Um, writers, credited writers for, on US films are not here, but there's a really interesting and somewhat awkward workaround that directors who are also WGA members are using by saying, I'm here as a director, my writing duties are done. That's what James Mangold told me about Indiana Jones. And he has a writing credit on that movie. Scorsese is here and he's got a writing credit on that movie. And Wes Anderson will be here. Meanwhile, and it, what we're seeing with, with uh, on the TV side, showrunners are saying there's no non-writing component to what 
they do. And so all these shows are shutting down. So we are seeing this like kind of interesting disconnect where it's like, oh, I'm just a director right now. I'm not talking about screenwriting. But then when it comes to these other things, writers are saying, well, you're always writing if you're a writer. So it's, it's a very awkward kind of situation. And I don't think anyone's found the language for it. But I also think people are kind of protected at Cannes because the writer's strike isn't here. And they banned protesting on the Quasette, partly because of this big strike in, in France and protests going on related to the retirement age. Uh, but it certainly has helped them that you haven't seen, you know, picket lines and stuff. So it's interesting. People are finding the diplomatic language to address it and still getting away with promoting their work. First of all, I just want to say that I love your podcast, by the way. I listened oh, to it before you. coming here just to prepare because uh, it's my first time at Cannes. But I just want to ask, what do you guys think about how the festival is this year as far as, you know, compared to years past? And do you think it's continuing to, like, innovate, um, you know, with the filmmakers here and kind of just like the subject matter of the films this year? Yeah, I mean, I'm always really wary of, you know, the inevitable conversation you have 10 times a day at any film festival where it's like, is this a good can? Is this a bad can? Is this... I mean, I think the perspective is just so blinkered while you're in it. And then you look back and you're like, oh, last year when I was bitching about how bad the movies were, whether they were actually all incredible and like, you know, what did I know? So, uh, but, you know, I tend to judge the film festivals by the best films that I see there because that's really what you take away. I have not seen anything here that I love maybe quite as much as something like After Sun, um, which uh, yeah, is unfair. But I but in, I think the more interesting thing to think about, you know, beyond my own personal tastes is what you asked about, you know, the festival innovating, expanding what it is. I mean, obviously they're making some you know, very uh, belabored and overdue strides towards including more women in competition. You know, seven of the 20 films in the competition are directed by women. Um, and I would hope that that would sort of expand the types of stories that we see told or the voices that are bringing into them. Certainly some of the standouts in the competition as, you know, have always been the case are by women. Um, but, and, you know, I, I would like to see a less maybe Eurocentric mm-hmm. competition, uh, you know, in the sidebars, you can find that to a degree, but it's still, and there is a, one African film in competition, but I would still uh, love to have a greater percentage of films from Latin and South America, from, from Africa. Um, there's a very small Asian contingent in the competition this year. I mean, there's always, there's always room to change, but it does feel like can is, a little bit more responsive to the winds of change than they used to be. Um, a little bit more inclusive, uh, baby steps, uh, <laughs> I suppose. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think but like on, it's not as if this year has been, in terms of quality, a huge anomaly one way or the other. No, it's, it's been good. It's also really hard to take the temperature of it when you're in the thick of it. I often find that you kind of have to see these movies separately from Cannes to fully assess what the year was like because once you're like couple months out you look back in that lineup you're like oh wow i saw that movie and then that movie and then that movie and they all came out in different times whereas now it's like all one big movie in a way. every year that you see portrait of a lady on fire and parasite back to back on the same morning <laughs> exactly. you're just like well okay well, and again some people did killers of flower moon in may december yeah. you know th- those movies are both going to have high profile releases probably at very different times and, and and have their different life cycles but here it was like a big chunk of the day for uh, for a lot of people thank you for the conversation um it felt real and knowledgeable um and with that said there's a lot of talk about chat gbt i wanted to also piggyback on his question about just the strike so have you seen any energy shift over to chat gbt with people using it as opposed to using actual humans to write the script and saving money because um at the end of the day uh studios are caring about the bottom dollar Right. 
Right. I mean, this is a central issue with the WGA strike. The WGA's terms are that uh, if a studio uh, creates a, an idea for a script using chat GPT or another AI platform and then asks a screenwriter to adapt it into a screenplay, that can't be a, an adaptation credit or a, a literary credit, that they have to get an original writing credit. And so far, that has not been sorted out. I think these questions are going to become more and more pressing because even people who are claiming that this thing is, is, you know, an existential threat to what they do are probably in private playing around with it because look, the technology is fascinating. They just came up with the, the, the iOS app for, for chat GPT. So it makes it much more intuitive to use it. Um, and I use it all the time. I took an inventory of the alcohol in my, in my liquor cabinet to figure out what kind of cocktails I can make. And it instantly spat out like 10 cocktails. I mean, the, the ways in which this thing works as a resource are completely unparalleled in modern history. So from a creative standpoint, I think it does open up some new possibilities, but the questions that it raises are so fraught in terms of what the creative practice is right now that nobody really knows how to answer them. So we're just going to see this go on for a while until somebody actually creates something great. Right now, we're not seeing great art created by this thing. We're just seeing the possibility of it. So I think it's just going to be more of a contentious issue until we get to the next phase of this. Have you been playing around with ChatGPT? I, I mean, I, I, on a much different, on the other side of the fence from you know the WGA issue, friends of mine the other night were sending me ChatGPT prompts that said, uh, Asteroid City review in the style of David Ehrlich, and they were like, "Yeah, do you like it? Or do you not like it?" And uh, I would love nothing more than to live in a future where I can just, you know, say yes or no, and ChatGPT can do the rest. Um, but uh, I don't think we're going to be living there anytime soon. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I don't have to toot my own horn to say that my voice was at least slightly more human than the one that was being spat back at me, uh, which was also really, really obsessed with the fact that Bill Murray isn't in this movie because that's like the one detail on the Wikipedia page. And so no matter whose style you asked it to write in, it was like Gene Shalit or Harry Knowles or like all these people they were using, Gosh. it would always be like it at the end. But where's Paul Murray? <laughs> Somehow I feel like that's not what you'd be most hung up on. Uh, but. I failed to mention it in my 1800 word review. So what does chat GPT know? Nothing. We'll take the last one right over here, the sunglasses. Hi. Um big fan of you both just wondering what your process is like when you're writing reviews if you have personal relationships with either the creators of the film or um you know like past experiences watching a movie with them recently yeah. how that affects your reviews coming into them because it seems like your reviews are so like fresh perspective and you come with it with such a unbiased response so i'm curious about what that looks like for both of you martin scorsese actually sat on my lap while i write <laughs> i wrote about uh killers of the flowerman which was awkward to write about the things that didn't work about it but he insisted um yeah, I mean, I think it's no different than the way that you or anyone else would think about movies in terms of interpolating your own feelings about a filmmaker and their past work. I mean, it's impossible to leave anything at the door. I mean, if you're talking about like a personal relationship, at a certain point, you just refuse to write about the person. But I think if you are reviewing their work, it is an implicit uh, implicit expression of, of saying that you have that distance. But it, yeah, I mean, it's for the same reason why I don't believe in there being differences between favorite and best. I mean, there is no objective way to approach a work of art. Uh, and that's part of what you know, worries me about the chat GPT of it all. I mean, it's like seeing movies where you take that subjective human element out of the equation. Right. The zone of interest fascinating because he was going for that alien touch by filming the entire thing with remote controlled cameras right. uh, and having the sets be absent of any crew. I mean, yeah, these are scattered thoughts, but uh, yeah, I don't know. You can't let that stuff 
you can't let that stuff. Yeah, happen. I mean, you could argue even if Martin Scorsese is not in your lap and, and, and he's still whispering sweet nothings in your ear because you have this deep relationship to him as a filmmaker, right? I mean, a lot of times it's like you're compromised because you want these, you love Wes Anderson movies. So you, you, you're you there for Wes Anderson. You can't, you can't look at it as, you know, totally, quote unquote, objectively as if, you know, it's a total first time filmmaker. It, or something change, like it changes the context. Like yeah. so much of my, for better or worse, so much of my review of Asteroid City is a speak is about his career and his previous films and speaking to people who know what I'm talking about. And uh, when you are reviewing a film in the sidebar at Cannes that's by a first time filmmaker, obviously you don't have that background and they don't have that history. Uh, and so it just, you know, you're just honest about the way that you're thinking about it. I would be lying to myself and anyone reading what I was saying if I pretended that I saw Asteroid City ignoring you know a long history of wes anderson's work i'm rooting for all of these filmmakers i mean like someone like jessica hausner is an interesting point of comparison because i thought her 2009 movie lords is a masterpiece and i've been absolutely outraged by her last two movies including the awful club zero that premiered this year and it breaks my heart because it's like, like, i know club zero is going for like a wes anderson thing through the lens of michael haneke or something it's it's very strange um but it, you know you want yeah Every time you sit down for a movie, you know, regardless of your feelings about who they are, you know, short of it being like a new Dinesh D'Souza documentary, you know, you want you want that you want it to be something there for you and that you can hold on to. But yeah. I think you we wouldn't we, we, we wouldn't be here if we weren't pulling for the filmmakers. And I have no problem telling somebody who I really like their work, and if I didn't like it, kind of just avoiding them if I happen to see them <laughs> around. And that does happen here. It's just the nature of the scene. So uh, we are out of time. Thank you all for coming here. It really means a lot to see you. Thanks for listening, if you do. See you around. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.